Now tonight and tomorrow night we're going to look at Madhu Pindika Sutta. Um, Madhu Pindika can be trans it was usually translated the honey ball. Um, I translate it as the sweet essence. And it's a very quite famous discourse. Um, and we're going to take two nights to unpack it. And so the talk is going to be abstract, technical, intellectual, obscure, <laughs> and serious, mysterious. mysterious, and difficult. So you, you can all start taking a nap right now and just kind of tune out. <laughs> Madhu Pindika, M-A-D-H-U, Madhu. What is it called, Patrick? The, the, sweet, the sweet essence or the honey ball? The sweet, sweet essence. The sweet essence. Mm. And Pindika is P-I-N-D-I-K-A. And it's number 18 in Majjhima Nikaya. Anyway, our story begins. The Buddha is um, visiting Kapilavattu, which is his hometown. And he's staying in Negroda's Park outside the city. And he's in the park, he's meditating. And walking in the park is a wealthy man, probably a merchant, who, whose nickname is Dandapani. Um, Danda means stick, Pani is hand, so stick in hand. Um, and he was called this because he's, he was famous for his walking stick, which was made of gold. So he was wealthy, ostentatious, um, and quite well known. And he had an image of himself as being very interested in Dharma. And so he's wandering through the park on his constitutional, and he sees the Buddha sitting under a tree, so he thinks this is the opportunity to um, ask a question. So he walks up and he stands leaning on his walking stick and he asks a question. He says, what does the Samana teach? What does he declare? So here you are sitting under this tree. What's your teaching? And the Buddha re replies, he says, Friend, I teach so, so one does not stand arguing with anyone in the world, with its devas, its maras and brahmas, its samanas and brahmanas, its rulers and peoples. I teach so that no perceptions underlie a brahmana who lives detached from desires, without confusion, with worries cut off, free from craving, for any kind of becoming. So that's that's the answer. Uh, so, first of all, um, the first part of his answer, I teach, friend, I teach so one does not stand arguing with anyone in the world. Uh, this is, is, is quite a typical move of the Buddha. He's asked about what is your teaching. So he's asked what we could say is a philosophical question. 
and he responds with an answer which belongs in the realm of ethics, how one lives. Basically, the ethical result or the expression of um, the teaching. So, uh, how one lives if one is free from compulsion, free from drivenness. Um, and this is important because for the Buddha, the teaching is always about how we live. That's what the Buddha is always interested in. Broadly speaking, ethics. So he creates a theory which can be quite elaborate. And we're going to go into it tonight and tomorrow night. But it's all about um, shedding light on how we live and changing how we live. So it's all about ethics. Uh, so the first his first response is about ethics, and it's directed precisely at the situation in which he finds himself. Um, Dandapani is standing, leaning on his stick. Not very respectful. Not very respectful. Incredibly disrespectful. Um, you can tell that he's, an, he's not a Buddhist when he, he doesn't address the Buddha as Bhante or the Blessed One. He says, what does the Samana teach? Samana means, you know, the reverend, the philosopher, whatever. But his attitude is very aggressive. He's standing, standing above him, leaning on his stick. So, you down there, what's your trip? What are you on about? Does he know who he's supposed to be at all? Or has he just come upon him and... He just came upon him. We don't know whether he realised who he was talking to. Maybe he did. I mean, the Buddha was quite famous. But um, if you hadn't met him before, how would you distinguish him from any other bloke in rags sitting under a tree? <laughs> and so the Buddha was alone? He yeah. No, no, he was alone. No, he was alone. And uh, this was his hometown. This is the town he, uh, he came back to this town. Yeah, he visited a number of times. We don't know. We never know. All we get is, you know, he's living in Kapilavastu, etc. So we, we never know which visitor was. And how, how far into his career was We don't know. Can't tell. Um, so the Buddha's first response is to... Um, turn Dandapani's attention inwards to his own condition. So um, you pretend or you purport to be interested in Dharma and yet the way you behave indicates you're completely alienated from that interest. So what drives you? Why, do you, why are you acting in this way? What is the source of your arrogance and Aggression. Sounds to me like he's saying, why are you spoiling for an argument? Yeah. Yeah, but what, why do people argue? What's underneath that? And so the first sentence is about ethics, and the second one is what we might call depth psychology. Now the Buddha goes into the depths of the psyche, why it is that people uh, live in conflict. So he says, um, I teach so that no perceptions underlie a Brahmana. This is a Brahman. 
But here it would mean practitioner, not a member of the Vedic priesthood. So no perceptions underlie a Brahmana living detached from desires, without confusion, with worries cut off, free from craving for any kind of becoming. So the Buddha moves into the underlying source of what moves us, what shapes our chosen way of life. Um, and here he's saying we are formed and moved by the underlying perceptions. Um, I teach so that no perceptions underlie someone who lives appropriately. Um, so here we have the first technical term. There's a, num- there's a number of technical terms in this discourse. Um, underlying perceptions. Um, Anusenti sanya. First of all, perception, uh, which we've mentioned briefly, perception is the recognition of a situation as being familiar. So perception gives us our familiar, meaningful world. It creates our sense of normality. Um, and what we perceive, we take for granted as being real, what's really out there. And perception is habitual. Uh, It's a product of repetition from the past. Um, So, for example, if you um, hear someone speaking in your native language, you just hear them giving you a message. But actually what the ears hear a whole series of sounds and it's the perception that turns it into a message. We recognise those words as containing these meanings but with our, uh, if it's our own language it's so deeply habitual that we don't even recognise it happening. We just hear the meaning. So it's a shortcutted. If you ever try to learn a second language you discover how much work and how much time and effort it takes to develop that perception. Uh, it's not to be taken for granted. But when, but what, um, because perception is habitual, in fact we do take our perceptions for granted. We don't look further. We don't investigate what underlies our perceptions. And above all, we don't understand that our normal everyday perception is a product of drivenness and delusion and therefore cannot be trusted. So this is the Buddha's perspective. Actually, one one example about perception in a... how it works in a meditation retreat, which it hasn't happened here, but often if you're teaching Dharma to a group of meditators, then sometimes you get the challenge that comes up, which clearly in the mind of the challenger is a brilliant and profound and unassailable challenge. And they say, ha-ha, but what about the real world? Eh? What about that? What about the real world? Well, this real world is the product of perception. What the person is talking about is their habitual perceptions. And that's what appears to us to be real and it's not to be, usually for most people not to be questioned 
And actually, if you do challenge it, often the response will be aversion. So perception, and then underlying perception. Uh, this is anusetti. This refers to the deepest and most habitual movements of what we would call the unconscious mind. Um, uh, the Buddha talks about the anusaya, the underlying tendencies. This is the closest that he gets to talking about what we would regard as the unconscious. The underlying tendencies are the potentialities deep within the heart-mind. They represent a potential for something to happen, something to arise, given a suitable trigger. Um, if you're a long-term meditator, you might have had the experience of feeling that you've definitely grown out of some particular obsession and then years later you're meditating away and suddenly, bang, there it is. <laughs> and you think that has been skulking in the background for the last ten years. <laughs> and now here, here it is, it's not, it hasn't disappeared. Now this might be an example of the underlying tendencies. Actually it hasn't been skulking down there. It's a potentiality, it's not a real thing. But there's this potential, this pattern, such that given the appropriate conditions coming together, doop, up this will arise, this will pop up. So these are the anusaya, the underlying tendencies. Um, and so here the Buddha is talking about the underlying perceptions, the deepest, habitual, most habitual, most unconscious way in which we perceive ourselves and our world. And what the Buddha is talking about here is he's drawing attention to the fact that we do not see these underlying forces. These underlying tendencies dominate the way that we live. They dominate what we think is going on, who we think we are, who we think other people are, and what we do about it. And it's what um, gives them their power is the fact that we don't see them. Um, they're invisible. So we are like puppets on strings. And of course what makes a puppet a puppet is the fact that they don't know that they're puppets. They don't know that they're being manipulated by the strings. Um, and we are being manipulated by these underlying perceptions. Um, so they are the deep habits that create our sense of reality, of normality and they're associated with craving, drivenness and delusion um, You know, yeah. That's clear enough, isn't it? Not too complicated. So, awakening is being spoken of as a life in which no perceptions underlie the practitioner. There are no perceptions, no underlying perceptions. Nothing underneath the surface. That's skulking and 
ready to jump up and conditioning us. Um, and such for the practitioner who is in that condition, for whom there are no underlying perceptions, quiet lives detached from desires. This means a, a life that is no longer driven, no longer obsessed. Um, but to find this, we have to penetrate beneath surface appearances. These are very deep. And to get to them, we've got to go very deep to expose them. So basically what the Buddha has just done, if you think about the situation, he's minding his own business. This arrogant bloke comes up, stands over him, treats him disrespectfully and asks him a question. And the Buddha, as they say in the Zen world, opens his mouth and shows his liver. He just gives him, bang, the whole teaching, all at once. Just hits him with the full blast of the Dharma. Um, and this is very interesting because he would not have done this unless he had seen some potential in Dandapani. That for all this surface arrogance, there was someone who had a potential to be moved by the teaching. Otherwise the Buddha wouldn't have bothered. So Dandapani actually does have some potential. But he is not interested and he walks off. I think, um, I forget the... I have to um, look up the sutra again, but he kind of waggles his eyebrows and says, oh, yeah. twirls his stick and scrolls off. He's just, basically, I think his response would have been, I've got absolutely no idea what you're talking about, <laughs> and I'm out of here. Uh, so Dandapani blows it. He blows his chance to be transformed, not because of his initial arrogance, um, the Buddha accepted it and addressed it directly but he blows it because of his failure to stay and ask a question he didn't stay and say okay, you've just taught me something and I have no idea what you're talking about could you explain it to me? Um, he, res he, he responds to his own inability to understand what's going on by concluding this is not worth taking seriously and walking away. And this is quite a common reaction. It's very easy when faced with a situation like this to walk away. It's the easiest thing to do. So, um, in the evening, the Buddha comes back home um, what they, the way that they would live, that they, they would camp out somewhere. In the morning, they after the arms round, they have the meal, and then they go out and scatter, and people do their own practice. They come back in the evening, and they share stories, dharma talks, questions and answers, and so on, have a social time, uh, and then crash out for the night and get up early in the morning and head off to arms round and so on. So the Buddha comes home in the evening, and um, he tells his bickers the story of this encounter and he repeats what he's told Dandapani. Um, 
Friend, I teach so one does not stand arguing with anyone in the world. I teach so that no perceptions underlie a practitioner who lives detached from desires without confusion, with worries cut off, free from craving for any kind of becoming. Uh, but it turns out that it's not just Dandapani who is confused. The bhikkhus have absolutely no idea what the Buddha is talking about. None. This goes straight over their heads. But their response is quite different. They actually ask for an explanation. Could you expand on this? Could you explain what you, what's going on here? And so the Buddha does. And you get, you get the second teaching. As for the cause through which we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation, if there is nothing there to delight in, welcome and hold to, just this is the end of the underlying tendencies to obsession, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, desire for becoming and delusion. Just this is the end of turning to violence and weapons, to quarrels, fights, disputes, recriminations, malicious words and false speech. This is where these evil, unwholesome states cease entirely. So this is the Buddha's expansion on his initial teaching um, so f first of all the idea of the underlying perceptions these have been expanded into concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation papancha sanya sankara um, so we've seen that perception is what gives us our normal everyday world it gives us our sense of normality once we think we know what's happening in the world or in any given situation, at that point we stop paying attention because we already know. This is why it's so easy driving a car to space out because I know how to drive the car compared with when I, my first driving lesson when ooh, push this, press that, turn this, look here. Um, so I, I really have to pay attention. But once it's habitual, I can just turn off and think about something else and just do it. So this is perception. Um, once we decide we know what's going on, then we don't look again because we think we know. Now this is where perceptions become concepts of perceptions. So perceptions already freeze the world but then they get doubly frozen through concepts of perceptions. And the concepts are even more frozen and more divorced from what's actually happening than the perceptions. And these concepts are closely associated with um, papancha, usually translated proliferation, could also be translated as complication. And we're going to look at this later. Now, the Buddha addresses the, under, uh, the cause or condition. As for the cause or the condition through which we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation. The term he uses here is nidana. And um, the bhikkhus would instantly recognise this term. This is a key technical term. And it's always used in the context of dependent arising. Uh, dependent arising is all about conditionality. 
if something is happening, something else is conditioning it. Uh, and we've been talking about this in the practice all the way through. So we, we've been saying, if I'm investigating an experience, one way I can do it is I can ask the question, what's feeding this? So what's happening to cause this? So, th- something is happening, or something else must be happening to stimulate this. Otherwise this would not be happening. And in turn, what does this feed? If I cultivate this, what's the result? There will be a result. So what is it? Um, So when we ask what feeds this, in technical terms, we're asking what is its nidana? And when we say, when we ask what does this feed, we're saying, we're asking uh, what does this function as as the nidana for? So Nidana introduces the idea of conditionality. Um, and a, a Nidana is something which is caused by something else and in turn causes something else. Does that make sense? A Nidana is something which is caused by something and in turn causes something else. So it's part of this network of conditionality. And as soon as the Buddha drops in this term, everybody knows he's talking about dependent arising. Um, so as for the, the cause or the condition through which we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation, um, what's What's causing this? How does this flow? If there is nothing there to delight in, welcome and hold to, just this is the end of the underlying tendencies to obsession, aversion, views, doubt, conceit, desire for becoming and delusion. If there is nothing there to delight in, remember we talked about delight before? Mm -hmm. When we were talking about craving? Nandi. Delight is the gratification that comes from satisfying a desire but it's always associated with agitation. It's like, that was good, I've got to do it again. So it's stimulated, excited, agitated, and it seeks repetition. Once is not enough, twice would be better. Twice was good, but another would be even better. So seconds were very good, but I've got to go back for thirds. The thirds were great, except it's getting a bit heavy, but I'll try the fourth, damn it, it's all gone. These greedy bastards were ahead of me. So this is delight. And it's always associated with... Hmm? No, doesn't sound like it. it. But it's always associated with restlessness, agitation, and therefore repetition. So it's actually painful, although it feels like it's good. But if we look at it closely, it's actually painful. Um, and holding... If there is nothing there to delight in, welcome and hold to. Holding indicates a state of being stuck. Can't move on from it. Um, And when the Buddha says, if there is nothing there, the nothing... Well, what he's talking about so far is the process of what we've called the constructed. um, The flow of 
constructed and conditioned events, samsara. When he says if there is nothing there, that nothing indicates the unconstructed, the not born, the not become, nibbana itself. Um, so in this teaching, in this bit he says um, as for the cause through which we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation if there is nothing there underneath it then that's it no more problem coloured by what? Uh, um, coloured by proliferation or complication we're going to get to proliferation later on is this making any sense at all? If it's making sense, you're way ahead of the bhikkhus. <laughs> because the bhikkhus are still completely confused. And they still don't know what's going on, except that they're too embarrassed to say so, because the teacher has just explained it to them. And it's kind of disrespectful to say, mate, we've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Could, I find that a little bit strange. Well, some of them would be fully awakened. Maybe these were particularly dull because they get scolded. <laughs> they get scolded later on, okay. <laughs> but not by the Buddha. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It could be the newbies. He could be just ordained a new bunch. It's quite possible. But isn't it even possible though that arahants who aren't particularly intellectual wouldn't wouldn't grasp it? Yeah, that's quite possible too. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Buddha, having explained this, gets up and leaves. And he goes into his hut, settles down for the night. Um, but the, the, the bhikkhus are left with, with this problem that, that the Buddha has just given them, given them a teaching. And it sounds very profound, but they've got absolutely no idea what it's about. So they need someone to explain it to them. Who will expound this in detail, they ask. Um, and so they, they decide upon Venerable Mahakachana, who is in part of this camp? Because of all the disciples, Mahakachana was the most skilled in explaining in detail what has been taught in brief. And this actually introduces us to a basic structure of the Buddha's teaching. Often you get teachings which are very, very brief and they need to be unpacked, which is what we do in these Dharma talks. So this is commentary. And the process of commentary would have begun in the Buddha's lifetime. One of the, would, one, have. Hmm? would have begun in the Buddha's lifetime. Because here we see it. We see an initial teaching, very brief, bang. Then we see it unpacked and expanded commentary. And then we're going to see this one expanded and unpacked even more. Commentary on the commentary. And, and this is typical of the Buddhist traditions. Um, a lot of the, the work, the intellectual firepower over the past two and a half millennia have been unpacking these teachings and explaining in detail what has been said in brief. And as, as you already can tell, the suttas are often very brief. It's like they're composed in shorthand. So they're meant to be unpacked. Um, the Indian... The, the Sanskrit term, uh, sutta is Pali, 
the equivalent Sanskrit term is sutra, and later on, centuries after the Buddha, uh, this system became really highly developed among the liter- among literate Indians. So you would compose a sutra which would be absolutely packed in, and in fact impossible to figure out what it meant without a commentary. And the person who would compose the sutra would also compose the commentary. And a classic example is Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, if you've ever had a look at them. So, um, they go up to um, Venerable Mahakachana and tell him the whole story and ask him to explain what's going on and what's the first thing he does. He scolds them. You had the Buddha sitting right in front of you. You could have asked him, but you've come to ask me? What is the problem with you people? <laughs> and the bhikkhus are all embarrassed and shamefaced, but they said, well, what to do is gone and you're here, so <laughs> could you just explain it? <laughs> so Mahakajana says, okay, okay. Um, and this, is, this passage is particularly famous. You, it's often commented upon. Mahakachana says, <clears throat> Depending on eye sensitivity and forms, visual awareness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. Contact conditions feeling. Have you heard this before? Mm-hmm. Yes, Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we've, we've, talk, we've gone through this before. And then he adds, What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate. Because of what we have proliferated, we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation regarding past, future and present. Depending on ear sensitivity and sounds, depending on nose sensitivity and odours, depending on tongue sensitivity and tastes, depending on body sensitivity and tangibles, depending on mind sensitivity and phenomena, mind awareness arises. The meeting of the three is contact, contact conditions, feeling. What we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we proliferate. Because of what we have proliferated, we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation regarding past, future and present. So this is the the teaching which we'll we'll go through. Of course, he goes through the six sense fields, which we talked about last night. And the six sense fields are all about the immediacy of experience and the feeling that is always part of that immediacy. The, um, The realm of affect, of stimulus and response. We are touched by something and we respond. And that's it's built in. Um, so depending on eye and forms visual awareness arises the meeting of the three is contact, contact conditions feeling so um, we're moved to do something to respond before we make any kind of choice about it it's just automatic, it just happens and um, so this is at the very basis like this is ground zero of experience and what Mahakachana is describing here is natural process there's a sensitivity there's a corresponding object 
there's the corresponding awareness they meet and feeling arises this is just natural process it's not good it's not bad it's just nature today it's been raining previously it was sunny it's not good it's not bad it's just nature it's just what happens that's it um, there's no problem and there's no person who has a problem it's just natural process does that make sense? clear so far? Okay. then the second sentence what we feel we perceive what we perceive we think about what we think about we proliferate so the first thing you notice is that here someone has just appeared there's no us in the first sentence there's a sensitivity a sense object awareness bang they come together feeling but in the next sentence there's someone there who is feeling someone has just appeared this is the self what we feel we perceive um, so it's no longer physical and mental events arising and ceasing it's someone who is feeling and perceiving so from feeling comes agency there's someone around there's someone doing something and f from feeling comes perception so our recognition of what's going on of, of our familiar world emerges out of our affective responses or we could say speaking broadly our emotional responses they are what create or condition the perceptions in other words first comes the heart's response then comes the head's understanding first comes what we would in our culture normally call emotion then comes reality so I think this is a very important principle particularly in a culture which overvalues reason we're all supposed to be operating on reason fine except reason is based on emotion so if we don't address that the reason is skewed so what we feel we perceive what we perceive we think about so we have a, we're presented with a world that we recognise that is familiar that makes sense and then Mahakachana says um, and this includes Vedana so we're already responding we're already engaged but we don't leave things there we need this world to mean something and so to create meaning we start thinking about about the world about this world which is created by feeling and perception so we start thinking about what we perceive our normal perceptions have you ever done that? <laughs> once or twice perhaps? so what we perceive we think about 
Now we're getting, we're creating this world of concepts that sits on top of the perceptions. So we've got the contact, the feeling, the perception, and on top of that, the thinking. What we think about, we proliferate or we complicate. This is papancha. And this is the mind going into hyperdrive in its determination to read more into the experience than is necessary or even useful. Have you ever thought about something much more than was necessary or useful? (laughs) This is proliferation. This is papancha. Complication. Um, and we do this because we're driven by affects, by, fi- by feeling and everything that comes with it and so we, this proliferation creates a world which is distorted complicated and a product of craving and delusion so we've got two we have two steps in and then the third sentence because of what we proliferate we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation regarding past, future and present now you notice in the second one um, we feel, we perceive, we think there's someone there making choices, there's agency we are doing something But when the process matures in this third sentence, because of what we proliferate, we are harassed by. We are no longer doing it. It's happening to us. We are now the victims of circumstances beyond our control. Have you ever had the feeling, the sense, as thought is us rampaging through the mind, I'm not doing this. This is happening to me. If, if I had any choice in the matter I would stop <laughs> but I don't so this is what Mahakachana is talking about uh, so we're com- just completely driven by forces out of our control in a world that seems separate and alien from us and this is our normal everyday the normal everyday world in which we live so what dominates now are concepts in Pali Sangha um, and these are fixed ways of experiencing and labelling the world um, so what's happened is we've lost touch with the directness of experience and we're living in a world of shadows because you notice that we're no longer in a world of perceptions but in a world of concepts of perceptions. There's an extra layer put on top of the perceptions. Now the perceptions themselves are already the product of habit. But now on top of that there's an extra layer, concepts of them. So there's even more alienation. Um, It's like a a kind of... um, cling wrap that covers everything Um, sometimes meditators will have the experience that they're trying to do something really simple like follow the breathing for example Uh, directly experience the body and the mind 
but we find ourselves somehow not connecting with it. It's like there seems to be some barrier. Um, it's like I feel out of, out of touch, separated somehow from the experience, um, isolated, not, not completely with it. Uh, sometimes we don't even notice this until somehow we stumble into an experience where we're genuinely intimate with the experience. We're simply with it. Wow, this feels good. And then we lose it. And then we realise just normally how just how alienated and separated we are from simple experience. So these are the concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation. Does that make sense? What did you call them before? Did you call them Sankara? Uh, sankha. sankha. The concept is, is the translation sankha. of Sankha, which is it's very similar to Sankara. It's, uh, but it's a, a different... Uh, S-A-N-K-H-A. So from the same root, Kha and Sang, with... And this is an old Indian technical term that the Buddha would have inherited. So what's the sun referred to? Cut refers to space, as you explained before. Uh, actually, I can't remember what the... It, uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't think cut is the word cut, it's the root cut. Right. So it's different, but I've, I've forgotten the, um, the derivation. But it's an old term, it's a pre-Buddhist term, um, And it basically means classification, enumeration, classifying, conceptualizing, analyzing, uh, making sense out of something through some kind of system of classification. And here it's being used in a general sense of concept. Patrick, where do the unconscious potentialities sort of seep into that hierarchy of proliferation? They're way at the bottom. Uh, that that's part of the dependent arising that there, there are um, certain things operating so deep that they're generally invisible in the standard formula of, of dependent arising there's, there's a standard 12-fold formula and the Buddha says delusion, conditions constructions, constructions, condition awareness so with awareness we see what's going on at the bottom is delusion these conditioned the constructions and these this process of the delusion conditioning the constructions this will be down in that subconscious level and what we get is the finished product we get a sense of something happening at the level of awareness but there's already something going on before we get to it before we notice it and you can you can tell that in your meditation practice it's like there's something under there and the, we talk about going deeper in the meditation it's like taking that awareness and going deeper down and then noticing things that previously we never saw that were unconscious um, because of what we proliferate we are harassed by concepts of perceptions coloured by proliferation regarding past, future and present you notice that with concept we have a world of experienced time. <clears throat> this is um, past, future and present appear now, at this point, with concepts. 
Um, this is what the Buddha calls permanence, and only concepts provide permanence. So let's take proliferation, complication. Let's say I'm, I'm sitting meditating and my mind is in a spin. It's like just gent- pouring off thoughts. Now for this group, obviously you, you have to just imagine that there are some meditators <laughs> who undergo this. Um, obviously you can't call upon direct experience, but <laughs> just imagine that, that, that someone's going through this process. Um, now this process is a manifestation of impermanence. It's a very good manifestation of it. It's constantly changing. It's constantly moving. It doesn't stay still for a second. Uh, so the proliferation is directly experienced as change, but the concepts created by the proliferation are perceived as permanent and containing time. I, it's always been like this for me. I always thought this was going to happen, and now it's happened, and it's going to be like this forever. So we have time, past, future and present, but it comes about through the concept. So the experience itself is just right now and it's changing all the time. But the concepts of the experience tell us, no, this is all about what's permanent. This is all about what happens, what survives from the past going through the present to the future. So... I'm lost in thought the actual experience is constantly dancing and changing what's permanent is the concept about it I always get lost in thought and it's always like this does that make sense? so where there's concept there's time where there's no concept there's no time So what Mahakachana is presenting here is how it happens that from the natural process of the immediacy of experience the mind creates, gets into this process which ends up with our minds running completely riot. Our minds are totally out of control and therefore our lives are totally out of control. And we're lost in drivenness and delusion uh, so what Mahakachana has done is give a particular view of how the constructed the world of the constructed is constructed, of how it works how we built it so we have built this world in which I'm here and I've got a problem and this is the real world and I'm stuck here because this is reality this is normal, this is me um, having, so he's, he's laid out how we create the problem and then he starts laying out how we could create the solution to the problem and we'll look at that tomorrow any questions or comments? that we spend so much time thinking that concept when we skipped over perception 
and gave that just like hardly any attention and yeah. jumped over it to then get lost in the thinking about what's not there. Yeah. yeah, because it's so familiar. Have we talked before about this, about the power, the attraction of narrative, the, the narrative power of an experience. And we tend to go for the drama, basically. We like the drama. Something nice and juicy to chew on. Exactly. And especially when the result is so satisfactory. <laughs> Viz me. Would it really be possible to like, exist and live um, just with your pure perception? I mean, we, we kind of need procedural memory. This is that. what we'll get to that tomorrow. Right. So let's have those questions tomorrow because this is Mahakachana. He's laid out the problem. Tomorrow he'll lay out the other side. So tonight he's been laying out the, the sankata, the constructed, and tomorrow he'll lay out the unconstructed. So we get a sense there. So did they understand this explanation? Um, well, it's not over yet. <laughs> we'll find out tomorrow. But it you, can't just rather reminiscent of Plato's metaphor of the cave. Yeah. Within the world. Yeah. Yeah, I think all the um, wisdom traditions have some story like this. This is interesting because of the, the psychological structure of it. It's very, very detailed. Mm. Um, mm. You said from feeling comes agency. Is that a kind of chicken and egg problem? You know, do you need agency to have feeling? Uh, feeling precedes agency, for sure. It precedes everything except the actual touch. And it precedes meaning as well. Oh, sure. And the other one was, if the unconscious is what we don't know, we don't know, is, is the process of meditation really, because you can never know what you don't know by definition, mm. so uh, is the process of meditation just really looking at the, the colouring, the, the sort of, you know, I didn't grab it, but the talking about perceptions having a colouring Mm, coloured by perception. Coloured by perception. That colouring. Coloured by proliferation. Perceptions coloured by proliferation. Yeah. But, but sort of becoming more sensitive to that, that colouring. Yeah, it's becoming more sensitive to what emerges out of the unconscious. As, as you say, if it's unconscious, we don't know. But what, what the Buddha pays attention... The Buddha does not pay attention to the unconscious because it's not part of empirical experience. He's only interested in empirical experience. What we know is this arises and it ceases, we can expand that. Uh, this arises when that arises. Um, and this ceases when that ceases. So remember the, the model of the four truths? Mm. There we had craving and dukkha. So what we have is what arises into view, into awareness, and how that plays. That's all we've got. That's all we can ever have. If what's underneath is, who knows, so he doesn't actually say there is an unconscious mind because there's no empirical basis for it. What he says is you can experience the fact that there are these deep um, potentialities because sometimes, bang, something comes up and you realise, oh, and I mean, I was caught in that 50 years ago and it's happened in the same way.
and this is this is the the Buddha's radical empiricism. Uh, if it's beyond experience, he's just not going to go there. Whatever you say about it, it's just blah blah blah. Yeah. So don't even waste your time. Okay, I told you it would be abstract, technical, and obscure, and I was right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.